Hi, I'm Rena Grove. And I'm Madhvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, the podcast that keeps you aware of feminist news and culture the easy way. So Rena, what are we talking about today? South Africa is taking Israel to court. And as I was sort of watching the trials, reading about the trials, I I kind of realized that there are a lot of parallels. I mean, this is probably obvious to say, but there are a lot of parallels between South Africa and Palestine. But more significantly, I was thinking about the role of women in this struggle and where women fit into, you know, anti-apartheid movement. Generally, you know, where does feminism slot into this conversation in relation to South Africa, in relation to Palestine? And so I wanted to talk about that today with you. Yeah, I guess Nelson Mandela famously said that South Africa cannot be free until Palestine is free. And yeah, definitely it's the same. Well, it's apartheid. uh, It's the same structures of oppression and imperialism and racism and yeah, supremacy that goes through here. So it's really, it was really significant. Like it's really important for South Africa to do that. And it's really interesting, actually. I was just thinking about like Nelson Mandela linked his country and Palestine, and Germany has linked Israel with Germany, like the fate of both and then Germany decided to step up and sort of back Israel it's like it's kind of like a ridiculous school thing as well a bit but except the fucking genocide so you know and I'm glad that Namibia took Germany down a peg by saying hey you made the first genocide in the history of humanity so uh oh yeah fully called them out amazing because where does Germany get off like, I was like, what? what is wrong with this country? Mm. Sorry, I could go on a whole nother rant about that. But What's also really interesting, also, when we think about Germany and Israel and Palestine and South Africa, like a lot of black radical feminists like Angela Davis and obviously uh, Middle Eastern feminists and black feminists in Africa, there's a way of thinking which is like defined by embracing this complexity about how we're all linked. Mm. And this is black feminist radical thinking, basically. So, you know, this idea that if one people are oppressed, we are all oppressed. And then in Germany recently, we also had these like anti-AFD protests, which is really nice to see. But at the same time, there is not this strong link made in German thinking between being anti-AFD but also pro-Palestine, you know? They're kind of linked. And also I was listening to this, like, black radical feminist talk with Angela Davis and a bunch of other, like, really good feminists, and they were saying within black feminism as well that there's a difference, they make this difference between, for example, people in the US doing good gender-based work, like, for feminism and black radical feminism. And one is that those people, you know, who work for, like, say, a government organization who is helping women in Atlanta get access to better birth control or healthcare or whatever reproductive rights, those people are not necessarily speaking out also pro-Palestine, you know? They're just thinking about their own issue in their own way. And I feel like this anti-AFD thing is also, like, you're just thinking about one thing but not as linked to 
a wider system. So is it a critique of the women in Atlanta? Actually, yes. There's some really interesting points in this tour. One was to do with the corporate capture of black feminism. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you are a woman in Atlanta, I don't know why. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm just criticizing black women in Atlanta. I don't even know any black women in Atlanta. Anyway. Um, I do. Okay, great. <laughs> but you know what I mean. If you are working for an organization, a lot of your funders are like, yes, we need to fix this issue about birth control or women's health, black women's health in Atlanta. They are not also necessarily going to be pro-Palestine. So you can't somehow speak out against that in the US because there is this thing where you might get fired or you might get your funding Mm. cut, right? It's actually the same in Germany. But I have more sympathy for the women in Atlanta than I do for anyone in Germany. Because one of the things that has made me incredibly angry, which is a weird thing to say about an IFD protest, because in general, I am pro-anti-IFD. That was a sentence to say. Because you have these people who, they're not even people who are engaged in any sort of activism work, you know what I mean? So like, if you're a woman in Atlanta and you're working with, you know, underprivileged people and you're scared about speaking out because you might lose your funding... There are real life consequences for you, you know, like vulnerable people might suffer. Whereas here in Germany, you have these people who are just either don't see the link between fascism and Israel, or they don't speak out because they have no backbone and they're scared of losing their job. But they are not responsible for vulnerable people in the same way that those women are. And so not trying to, you know, defend that and saying, but I have more sympathy for them than all of the hypocrites in Germany who are like, the AfD is bad and say nothing about Israel. But I think it might have something to do, both cases, is not necessarily just that you might lose your job and the funding situation and institutionalization of activism, you know, which then limits the activism. It's a bit like what we said about charities the other day. But it's not just that. They also pointed out, like, Instagram, for example, Mm -hmm. which takes... All those Audrey Lord, um, <laughs> Audrey Lord, poor Audrey Lord quotes mm-hmm. out of context of the rest of her work and thinking, and it's boiled down to just one quote, and it's simplified, right? And they say that like a lot of her other work has been erased. So, for example, Audrey Lord wrote Apartheid USA which was about South Africa, but that's just not quoted by folks. The quotes that are used by her are like, you know, self-care, or, you know, you could print out on a poster and put it in your office, none of us are free until all of us are free, that's fair enough. But it's completely out of context of the actual activism. And that's a sign of, I guess, modern times. And Instagram, like, it's a good starter way into activism, but it's not in the spirit of, like, black radical feminism. But, I mean, Audrey Lord also, like, lost a lot of platforms and publications and jobs and awards because of her pro-Palestine stance. And now she's just, like, in trend. But we don't realise that she was absolutely radical and also that she suffered for her stance, you know? She seems like such an easy, oh, you know, love, emotion, blah stuff right now but she's not an easy thinker this makes me really excited for the next book we're going to read in our book club in february which is called uh, we were once feminism it's called, i think it's called the buying and selling of a movement by andy zeisler she talks about exactly this i think she calls it marketplace feminism and again hers is she's a white lady so it's a bit more geared towards that you know 
But essentially, she talks about how feminism has become a commodity Mm -hmm. that you can shape and sell and buy, you know, and there's always this example of the woman who said the quote, my my feminism will be intersectional or it will be nothing, which is like a quote that's like slapped everywhere. And yet the original woman who said this receives no money, no attention, and who like basically is like living an impoverished life, whereas like, you know, all these girl power girl brands are slapping her slogan onto a cup and selling it for $15. Anyway, very excited for our next book club book. I mean, talking about the book club, it was really interesting to see this group of black feminist thinkers in conversation. It was Angela Davis, Beverly Guy Sheftel, Brea Johnson, great talker, Breonna Simone-Jones. And one of the questions they got, and especially Angela spoke on this, was... How does one resist, you know, because especially in Germany now also, like, for example, as an artist or a writer, our cultural funding and stuff is being changed right now so that we accept one definition of anti-Semitism, which strongly prevents you from criticizing the state of Israel. And there needs to be a definition of anti-Semitism that does not equate a state with a people. So one of the questions was like, how, when you lose your job, when you get death threats, when you go to jail sometimes, you know, how do you still resist and take a stand and not turn away? Like, how do you do that? And she had just such a great answer. And the answer was, have a community. Mm. Have a community. You have to be prepared so that when somebody attacks you, they are not just attacking you as an individual. You have your people. And she brought up this great example of like, she was due to get an award from a civil rights organization. And then they said, oh, well, you know, we have to rescind it. They didn't even say why, but obviously it was because of the Palestine thing. And she said what they did not bank on, and obviously because she's Angela Davis is a bit different, but what they did not bank on was that so many people worldwide would go at them for this decision. And What happened in the end was she got the award and they also changed a lot of their board members as a result. The same thing happened with the Heinrich Boll Stiftung and the award for Masha Gessen, who is a Jewish writer and compared Gaza and a ghetto. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the Germans were like, no. And there was such a big pushback that they had to just have a discussion about not having the award ceremony for them. I think also within like, if we just stay on Instagram, yes, there are two ways to use that technology. Sometimes like it really does bring us together, but sometimes we're just us with our screens and it's not really community, you know? And one of the things that they mentioned was like education and book clubs and all of that sort of stuff, which we're starting, which is why like, I'm really excited about that because it seems like the right thing to do. Also, they said like, for example, women's studies, women's studies started with people like consciousness raising like with groups of women and then it got taken over by you know universities rightly so but then there's a real control over this discourse concerning women's studies you know and you've Mm -hmm. lost that little community so it's like really much very much mirrors that charities discussion we had last week i think that we've been seeing something super nice or at least like i've been observing it where you know over the last i don't know four months How long has it been since October? October, November, December, January. Yeah, four months. Four months. Amazing. We can count. 
that there's been a lot of community events that have been happening and I've seen them sort of form on Instagram and then be taken offline, whether it's sharing circles or people just getting together to support one another. I think there has been, like, it's been really beautiful to see that. It's been a super nice moment. I want to, like, not change the subject, but in my research for this, I started reading about a South African feminist called Lillian Ngoi. And a lot of what you were saying, specifically towards the end, kind of really, really reminded me of her life because fast forward all the way to the end of her life, she died very impoverished and her livelihood came from the women who she had known in her life. She was able to survive because she had built up this amazing network of women throughout the world who supported her financially until her death. Amnesty International also supported her. But push them aside let's focus but on the women community yeah. it's also a community yeah and she was like this completely amazing kick-ass woman in south africa she was a black south african or actually you know what's really interesting i was listening to this podcast and they kept saying she was an african south african and then they would refer to the white people as colonizers it was very good so i'll rephrase that she was an african woman living in south africa during apartheid she she comes from sort of modest beginnings and then she got married had a child and then her husband died this is important because all of a sudden she was like the sole breadwinner and this plunged her into poverty and from being plunged into poverty in this way i mean not not only of course because living in apartheid south africa there's a lot of things that will be enraging and, and aggravating and so obviously there's not one deciding factor that will make you an activist but she sort of be became more in politics after this. She became a member of the ANC. She was one of the first members of the Federation of South African Women. She took part in the defiance campaigns. Actually, the defiance campaigns were what made her join the ANC. The ANC is the party that Nelson Mandela belonged to. It was one of the biggest resistance parties in South Africa. She was part of the 1950s Women's March, which happened on August 9th. And actually, it is... August 9th is still celebrated as International Women's Day in South Africa. The Women's March was basically, they were going to pass this thing called the Pass Laws, and they were going to extend them to women, of course, only to not-white women living in South Africa. And the Pass Laws are basically, you have to carry a permission slip around. You have to carry a passport and a permission slip around that allows you to go into certain areas. And the women were not okay with this, so they organized, I mean, who would be okay with that? A massive march where they basically walked to the Capitol building, but the main sort of building, and were going to demand that this not be enacted. I mean, they failed because this is apartheid South Africa, but she was part of leading this. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up was because she has been almost completely erased from anti-apartheid work. And I was listening to a podcast about her, and they were saying one of the main reasons is because she was not linked to a man. She was an independent woman, and within the anti-apartheid sort of struggle, there was obviously sort of, again, ironically, kind of a two-tiered system. If you were a man struggling against apartheid, you know, you were kind of put on this pedestal. If you were a woman who was somehow linked to an anti-apartheid fighter, be it Nelson Mandela, be it someone else, you were also put up on a pedestal. But Lillian Ngoi, who spent, you know, 71 days in solitary confinement, lived under house arrest. That's why she depended on money towards the end of her life, because she was a banned person on house arrest, which means she couldn't work. 
She was arrested many times. She was part of marches. She was part of organizations. She was the first woman elected as, you know, an executive branch of the ANC, wiped completely from their history. She died an impoverished woman depending on support of the amazing women she had because there was support for the women of the ANC whose husbands had been put into prison. There was no financial support for female members of the ANC who had been put into prison. And it's so sad because here is this woman who really led the fight. She has this really great quote that I really liked where she said, Let us be brave. We have heard of men shaking in their trousers. But who ever heard of women shaking in their skirts? It's said that she was a great orator, that she was like really good at speaking, which I think is why they found that she was so dangerous because she was very articulate. No recordings of her speeches exist. It was not recorded. So we only have written evidence of what she said. But basically, what a fucking kick-ass woman who like was instrumental in the fight for anti-apartheid, you know, work. She never lived to see South Africa free. That's a shame. She died before. You know, even if you Google, like, who are the most, you know, important women in, like, the South African struggle, you get either the names of, like, you know, Winnie Mandela, who is amazing and great in her own right, not a negative thing towards her, but, like, is, you know, the wife of Nelson Mandela, or you get white feminists, which also, like, super glad they were doing their part to, you know, liberate South Africa. But then you have these amazing women who are just... I think Winnie Mandela is very interesting because yeah. she also spent a lot of time in solitary confinement and prison and everything, but she's kind of erased yeah. because of, you know, a lot of things. She was really cool. She she took part in those those campaigns. I can't remember the name where it basically called for violence against the white yeah. colonialists. But what, yeah. what was the name of it? It's called something like Belt something? Yeah, the, she was a favor of necklacing of alleged police informers and apartheid government collaborators and her security detail carried out kidnapping, torture and murder. I'm not laughing at this, but I also, I feel like Nelson Mandela has been whitewashed in a way, like such a nice guy, he's so kind. And then Winnie Mandela becomes, you know, the evil wife. And Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously she was complex, right? I think Nelson Mandela was also complex. And I think we have to hold these two things always together that Winnie Mandela was revolutionary and violent and a woman. And it was really great also to see, I think it was Brea Johnson who said in this Radical Black Feminists, that she will not criticize any method that the Palestinians have to resist. Mm -hmm. She will support any and all of their efforts to resist. And that includes, of course, she's talking about Hamas, right? And the fact that they, you know, there was this music festival outside this, and they decided to fuck it. We're going to, you know, do whatever we're going to do, because that is a resistance movement. It's really interesting when you saw the South Africans speak. Did you see that clip about who was saying that Hamas is a terrorist organization? Oh, was it the British guy, George Shah, or whatever the name is, the British? Who said that Hamas Mm -hmm. is a terrorist organization, and the representatives of South Africa said... Well, actually, South Africa has never recognized Hamas as a terrorist organization, and neither have most of the global South, like half the world. And that's really interesting because the ANC itself was declared a terrorist organization by Israel, by the US, by the UK, you know, this fight for apartheid. So when we talk about things in the language of the oppressors, they define who is a terrorist and who is not. 
And they're not always right. Because the ANC was not a terrorist organization. Actually, it was the opposite. And I think it's really... I think it's really important to acknowledge this and also to acknowledge the complexity, like the complexity of Winnie Mandela, of Hamas, you know, like, yeah, I'm not saying they're great or nice or anything and they're really problematic and they need to be getting, gotten rid of for a peaceful society and freedom also, of course, but they exist as a resistance movement also and you can't separate those things. Of course, I it's like... To me, I always, it's so flabbergasting to me that violence of the oppressor is always counted as legitimate. You know, all of the bullshit things that the South African apartheid regime did, all of that violence, all of the horrible things they did, whether it's direct violence or indirect violence, all of that is never seen as bad. All of the horrible things that Israel is doing to all of Palestine, none of that is ever seen as violence. But the second that, you know, an oppressed group of people pick up arms to, you know, defend themselves against the oppressor. That's violence? Like, it just makes me so mad in a way that I can't even articulate. And then that's the violence that's focused on all the time. And then it's also our press, and it's also our language of the stories that get published on newspapers. And you can just see it so clearly now. Yeah. The bias is flabbergasting, and this absolute, like, this is the worst story, and this sticking to it and it's like it's like watching donald trump in a way just outright lying and i i feel like in a way he was better because he was more obvious about it whereas like you know but you know what i mean a hundred percent yeah 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 yeah. and the other thing that's like you know if you go back in the history of feminist writings about palestine they've been calling it actually genocide and apartheid for years like this horror has been going on for years and almost now just because it's so extreme like it's been taken to its absolute extreme the violence has been this thing has has been taken to the worst possible conclusion it could possibly be taken to now the same story is maintained and it's really funny because 11 years ago i guess angela davis and beverly guy scheftel and a group of women went to palestine and they're they are fully engaged with the struggle in Palestine. And they all said it was way, 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 way worse than they imagined. Can you imagine that? And Beverly Guy Sheftel grew up in 1950s Jim Crow South in Memphis and stuff. And she was like, I couldn't imagine. Imagine like there's a black family and a white family moves into a house and the black family has to leave and try and get that house back by legal means. And meanwhile, they're getting shouted at in the streets by all these white people. She was like, actually, it was worse. It it was worse. And and then if you think now it's just blown up, like how bad is the situation in Palestine? We don't even know. We can't even know because, okay, we get those videos on Instagram or whatever, but it's going to be way, it's just way, way worse than we can even imagine. It already was for the last hundred years or some shit. We have a mutual friend who went once to Palestine and she was telling me the story about how she didn't really understand how bad it was until she got there. And she, you have to fly into Israel to go to Palestine. And she tried to get onto a bus and they told her no. And you're like, you're an Arab, you have to go on the Arab bus. I feel like the realities of, I mean, everything you've just mentioned, but I feel like the realities, people who advocate for a two-state system don't fully understand what's actually going on there. And they just think, oh yeah, it's like, you know, two countries side by side. And I'm like, no, it's really not. It's just, ah. There was a a Palestinian woman who went to Palestine. Uh, She was 
in the US and she was at Harvard and so a bunch of Harvard people and she happened to be Palestinian went back to went to Palestine on you know as a Harvard thing she also she was treated totally different like all of her colleagues who were from Harvard who were white were able to go back you know through the passport control whatever and she was put in a room by herself blah blah, blah. and she was just like and that's me I'm from the US I'm with this the same permission slips the Harvard things that they go with as everyone else and I got treated that badly can you imagine like it also turned on her brain like yeah how these people are treated but basically when like you know you bring it back to Winnie Mandela sort of advocating for necklacing I'm like personally I don't like violence not a fan of violence to be honest who can say that they are but I fully like understand this if you are living under an apartheid regime that is doing these absolutely unspeakable things to you and everyone around you, of course you're going to want to do this. Like, it's the only normal human reaction to being subjected to long sustained violence. It's a result, of course. Of course. Like, things like this don't happen in a vacuum, no matter how much the Western media, whether it be during apartheid time, whether it be in present day, try to paint it as such like, oh, these are violent people. These are naturally violent people. It's a reaction to long sustained violence and oppression and genocide. And I think there's always this like in the racism talks and everything, it's like, why is everyone so angry? This kind of way of looking at like, can we be peaceful? Can't you talk about this reasonably? It's like, Everyone has tried this, and now there's only violence and rage left in this situation. Also, if you're not angry, are you not paying attention? There has been this whitewashing also of revolution and protest and change. Because, yeah, even in the US, you've got Martin Luther King, but you still had the Black Panther movement, and they were part of this change, man, and they were violent. They they advocated for violence, and there was violence as part of every single movement you still you had gandhi for example but mm-hmm. you still had a lot of violence happen like you cannot erase it also from the history of change and revolution i once read this really good paper and i have literally googled for it and i cannot find it one of these days i will find it and it will be the happiest day of my life it was an academic paper that a woman wrote about how nonviolence is a privilege and it was such a beautifully articulated uh, paper. I read it like 10 years ago and it was sort of like really helped me shift my mentality and I can't find it. But if if anyone out there knows what I'm talking about, I can't remember anything other than like the subject matter. I don't even remember the title. I don't remember. It was a woman who wrote it and it was so good. I really want everyone to read it. But I was thinking of uh, Miriam Akeba, Mm-hmm. was like a very prominent South African musician. I don't know if you know her. I would sing one of her songs, but you won't be able to recognize it. But she was an anti-apartheid activist from South Africa, obviously. She moved abroad to the U.S. where she was kind of celebrated amongst liberal circles for her anti-apartheid work. I mean, she also made great music. And, you know, that combination made her super popular. And then she married a Black Panther. And... Overnight, she lost all of her support. All of these white people who had loved her and supported all these white liberals who had like kind of celebrated her, overnight, suddenly they distanced themselves for her. But that's the same problem of that like shallow activism where you just isolate one event and you're like, I'm for this one thing. But then you don't understand like the big systematic 
links and you're not really in solidarity you know absolutely not you just got your kind of politics sort of reasonable for for this one thing yeah i mean a complete lip service she has this really great song called beware their word don't know if i'm saying that correctly doesn't matter he was a dutch colonizer so whatever can butcher his name and he is sort of seen as the architect of like the apartheid system, you know? And I just love that she basically has a song where she's like, I'm coming for you. <laughs> basically just singing for all of the people who are imprisoned and straight up just threatening this guy who invented apartheid. I came across a really nice poem from June... No, not from June Jordan. Actually, I came across some really nice poems from June Jordan. But this poem is by Totake Shange. I'll read a verse of it. Same vibes. <laughs> Excellent. There is no edge, no end to the new world. Because I have a daughter, Trinidad. I have a son, San Juan. Our twins, Cape Town and Palestine, cannot speak the same language but we fight the same old men, the same men who thought the earth was flat. Go on over the edge, old men. You'll see us in Luanda or the rest of us in Chicago, rounding out the morning. We are feeding our children the sun. That's beautiful. That's a nice way to end the episode, I feel. So this week's three things to be a best person this week. Some of the questions that might be useful for you to ask yourself so that you could build a community and solidarity and resistance in your life is number one and th these are from the talk that i referenced and we'll put it into our newsletter number one what does a political home look like to you number two how can you make organizing a part of your everyday life and number three, what cultural and political shifts do you still need to spend more time with? Think too, I think it's really important to take the time to read the books and the writings and listen to the speeches of feminists who are on the ground, local feminists from the countries, generally women who are involved in the struggle and not just always resorting to, you know, reading some lip service quotes on Instagram or the basic simple books you can read, but really take the time to engage with the people at the scene who are experiencing the struggle. And maybe don't take these women and their words out of the context. It's really important to understand where they come from and what they're actually speaking about. And really do your research into what they were actually saying before you repost another Audre Lorde Instagram post. And number three, listen to some of these great resistance songs from South Africa, from Palestine. We actually have a playlist of resistance songs and we'll add it into this week's newsletter. So engage with all that art and music and poetry. I particularly like June Jordan's poetry, which I hadn't read before. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Until next week. Goodbye. For all links to sources and further reading for this week's episode, subscribe to our newsletter, misinformed.substack.com. Email us if you'd like to come on the show or join our book club, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. And support the show via Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash misinformed.